Good afternoon. Our, for our, well, our last case of the day is State versus Hobbs, but um, I'll note for the record that Justices Berger and Dietz are recused in this case. Uh, at this time, we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Uh, my name is Sterling Rozier with the Office of the Appellate Defender, and I represent Mr. Hobbs. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal, please. Your Honors, this case is before this Court after a remand hearing ordered in 2020. Uh, some of you will recall that this case involved a trial in 2014 in which the defense objected to several strikes by the state under Batson and the strikes of three jurors, uh, Humphrey, Layden, and McNeil, came before this court re for review. And this court remanded to the trial court to conduct a full analysis under Batson's third step to consider the record and all the evidence and determine whether the state's use of strikes uh, were improperly motivated by racial discrimination. And the order that the trial court has certified back to this court is a case study in doing Batson wrong. From its first findings to its last conclusions, the trial court was repeatedly led by the state to committing clear error. And clear error occurs when uh, considering the errors in the context of the full record, the reviewing court is left with the definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been made. And uh, I'll have to rely on my briefing to discuss uh, most of those mistakes because there are just too many, but they range from the trial court's failure to find that the trial of an interracial crime of violence is susceptible to racial violence, or to the trial court finding facts about characteristics of jurors which are simply not true, um, or entirely mishandling a comparative juror analysis uh, and, and doing it in a way that is the opposite of the way that the United States Supreme Court does comparative juror analyses. Um, and, and there are more. But if you review this record and you consider the arguments in the brief, um, and whatever we discuss today, you'll see that many mistakes have been made. Uh, the order is clearly erroneous. I'm happy to talk about whatever you would like, but I'm going to focus on just a few of the mistakes uh, here today. First, I want to talk about the clearly erroneous uh, determinations that the trial court's uh, order drew from the state's use of peremptory strikes. Um, the prosecutors wrote in their proposed order, and the trial judge found, that the state did not repeatedly use peremptory challenges against black jurors such that it would tend to establish a pattern of strikes against black jurors in the veneer. And what's worse, the trial court found that the state's use of peremptory strikes, including not using all of their peremptory strikes, was evidence negating an inference of discrimination. Um, so first, uh, both of these determinations were mistakes, but first we'll look at the strikes they did use. Two of the first three, three of the first four, four of the first six, six of the first eight, and eight of the first 11 strikes that the state used were against black jurors. And yet the trial court found that this was not the state repeatedly using its strikes to remove black jurors, when in fact, at all times, the state was using more of its strikes against black jurors than non-black jurors. Uh, but if that isn't enough, we should compare the state's strikes of black jurors against their strikes of non-black jurors. Um, at the time they struck McNeil, for example, uh, the state had struck eight of 16 black jurors. So they had struck 50% and they had accepted 50%. But when you compare that number to the fact that they struck only three of 23 non-black jurors, meaning that they struck only 13% of non-black jurors, 
and accepted 87%. Uh, the disparity is striking. They were almost four times more likely to strike a black juror than a non-black juror. And again, the judge somehow found that this was not a pattern of strikes against black jurors. Up until the alternates, the state used eight of 12 peremptories against black jurors, meaning that 66% of the time they were striking jurors, they were striking a black juror. Um, and during this time, uh, I believe that the state questioned 45 jurors overall, and, and 16 of them were black. So black jurors made up 33% of the, the people in the jury that the state questioned. And yet 66% of the time they struck jurors, they were striking from that one-third of the jury. Um, and if these numbers don't show a pattern of striking black jurors, what numbers would? The, the trial court made a mistake. But what's worse is that the trial court also made a mistake in considering the peremptory strikes that the state didn't use. Because the trial court correctly found that the state did not use all of its peremptories. But then it made the unsupported leap from that fact to, to say that that fact was evidence negating an inference of discrimination which is both a, a legal and a, a factual mistake applied in this case. It's a legal mistake because the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't rely on this factor. And as you have heard about uh, elsewhere today, the strike of a single juror because of race is a violation. And this rule applies at any time a strike is made, whether or not the striking party has exhausted their peremptories. Um, consider Flowers, the Supreme Court's most recent case on this where the state only used six of at least 12 peremptories and nowhere in the Flowers decision does Justice Kavanaugh discuss they had peremptories remaining and we find that this weighs against an inference of discrimination, but you know, whatever. They, they just don't bring it up because it's irrelevant. Um, now I admit that our cases do uh, occasionally say that this can be a factor, but, but they don't require it. And if they were to require a judge to find that not using all of your peremptories negated an inference of discrimination, it would be wrong because it would run counter to that Supreme Court precedent. And it's the blind um, kind of unexamined use of this factor that is present here that, uh, that really shows why this is wrong because the state's remaining peremptories do tell us a story. Looking at the record, we see that before the McNeil challenge, the state questioned 39 jurors and they used 11 strikes during this period. After McNeil, the state questioned seven additional jurors and they only used one strike. So after the McNeil strike, they essentially stopped striking jurors. And the other thing that happened after the McNeil strike was that no black jurors made it into the jury box. So the state certainly had peremptories remaining, but this isn't evidence negating an inference of discrimination. It's evidence suggesting that there was a correlation between the use of peremptories and the presence of black jurors in the box. And the only correct conclusion to draw from the state's use of peremptories overall, this, the, the pattern of striking more black jurors than not, of significantly striking black jurors disproportionately to non-black jurors, and, and essentially ceasing using peremptories once black juries aren't, jurors aren't in the box, the only conclusion is, is that this is evidence in, uh, of a, a pattern of peremptory strikes used against black jurors. And this is evidence supporting an inference of discrimination. It was a mistake to conclude otherwise. Are you saying that it's a mistake of law that the trial court uh, cannot uh, weigh evidence and uh, consider uh, how to um, make inferences from that evidence? Um, I'm saying that, that 
on this evidence, the trial court drew the wrong conclusions. As a matter of law. Um, I'd say, well, it's a, it's a clearly a factual mistake. I mean, it's not a matter of law that 50 percent. Inferences, by definition, it seems, would mean you could infer or you couldn't infer, or you can infer one way or you can infer another way. Well, if you, have your, if you have your underlying assumptions wrong, then the inferences that you draw from those conclusions are going to be incorrect as well. So, so what's, the, what's the legal error that you are advocating? Um, well, there, there are several. In that instance, I think it was legal error to, to conclude that the evidence uh, of having peremptories remaining negated an inference of uh, discrimination. How, how can that be a legal error if our courts have referenced that as Because the factor? Supreme Court never has. And I think that our courts to are we limited? discuss that are, are incorrect. When, so, so you would advocate overruling those I, I think that the Supreme Court of the United States has, has essentially overruled any decisions from our court that apply a heightened burden than the burdens that the Supreme Court already applies. Hasn't the Supreme Court uh, talked about that a, a trial court uh, needs to uh, be weighing evidence and to consider things. And if the trial court articulates that in its view, uh, not using uh, all the peremptory challenges is a factor to consider, uh, how does that violate any case law of the Supreme Court? Well, I think if that were an appropriate consideration, you would have expected to see it in flowers where not all of the peremptory strikes were used and yet that never came up. Um, and I think that following that reasoning, uh, th the reason they don't talk about it is because a single strike is a violation of the Constitution. And if you were to start setting sort of quotas or something on, well, if they have a peremptory left, you got to say that's evidence not uh, supporting an inference of discrimination. Then striking parties will just strike all but one, right? They'll, they'll make sure they have a peremptory left to, to avoid uh, uh, having this, this inference taken away from them. Um, and, and they're just, that cannot be how, how Batson works. But um, I thought you were also making, and correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but I thought you were also making sort of a logical argument that you, you can only use the fact that there are peremptories remaining, or you, you can only use, it would only logically be that the fact there are peremptories remaining and they weren't used might be some evidence of either discrimination or not discrimination if there were African-American jurors, potential jurors remaining in the jury pool. And I think I, that's right. And I think on, on the facts of this case, right, it, it was clear error, right? The, the other standard that comes up when you talk about clear error is whether if there are two permissible uh, ways to interpret the data. And here, I, I, there is only one permissible way to interpret this data, and the trial court chose the wrong one. I mean, the trial court, the trial court excuse me, um, chose incorrectly when it chose to interpret, you know, a 10% versus a 50% strike disparity as not evidence of a pattern. There are some mistakes that were just, they were just obviously wrong, and there is no other permissible interpretation. Um, but the other set of mistakes that I wanted to talk about, um, and again, there, there are a lot more talked about in the brief, but I want to talk about states' proposed finding of fact 46 and finding of fact 46 as the, the trial court found it. Um, 
this is the, the trial court's finding of facts which were not true and its failure to recognize the state's 11th hour attempt to offer new explanations for its strikes as pretext and, and its failure to hold that against the state's credibility. In, in finding of fact 46, the state attempted to rebut the comparative juror analysis that, that we had prepared. And they did so by incorrectly highlighting significant differences between the jurors that we had made comparisons to and the black jurors who were struck. And that is entirely inappropriate um, for reasons that we discuss in the brief, uh, but this sort of discriminative quote-unquote whole juror approach is not how it should be done, and it certainly shouldn't be done on the basis of, of last-minute uh, post-hoc sort of afterthought filings. But, but if we credit it, and if we take it at face value as the trial court did, we, we should look at what the state actually said, because again, they, they highlight quote-unquote significant differences between the jurors they struck and the jurors they accepted, and they list several, uh, several excuse me, favorable characteristics in non-black jurors that they claim explain why they preferred those jurors for non-racial reasons. They noted that four non-black jurors had military experience or a connection to someone who did. They note that seven non-black jurors have a law enforcement background or a connection to someone who did. And they, they note that nine non-black jurors had been a victim of a crime. And they represent that these attributes, again, were significant differences between these jurors and the jurors who were challenged that explained why those jurors were preferred. And if this were true, if the state's representations of the record were correct here, we would expect to find that none of the black jurors at issue had been the victims of a crime, when in fact all three had. And we would expect to find that none of the black jurors at issue here had military experience when Layden had been a Marine for eight years and worked as a guard at Fort Bragg. McNeil was in the Army for three years. And there shouldn't be any law enforcement background either. Uh, but the state, when they said that some of these jurors had a law enforcement background, one of the people they talked about was uh, Juror Hardin, whose husband worked in a prison. And Mr. McNeil did the same thing. So the state represented these as significant differences that motivated their strikes. And in fact, they're, they're just additional similarities. So if we credit the state's new excuses, their new attempt to justify the strikes by saying these were the factors that they cared about, then the analysis actually shows that these jurors are similar in that way too. Um, but the trial court found facts that were not true. Right? There is no possible interpretation of the record that shows that, that these representations are accurate. And uh, it made the, this mistake by finding differences which weren't there and, and then by not finding that these were similarities. Uh, but worse, the trial court didn't recognize this for what it was. This was, this was something that was drawn up a, a week before the hearing, uh, six years after the trial, in response to a comparison. They were, it's, it's the 11th hour uh, post hoc attempt to offer shifting explanations to cover their trail. And as the Supreme Court recognized when faced with similar practices, it, it's make weight. And it's not just make weight, but when a prosecutor's attempted explanations for a strike don't hold up and are so far at odds with the evidence, it indicates the very discrimination that the explanations were meant to deny. The fact that they offered these excuses indicates that something is going on, that they are trying to conceal something. 
and the trial court's failure to recognize these facts was wrong. And the next thing I want to talk about, um, it, it's something that's important, and I think this distinguishes this case from pretty much any other case uh, that, that I've actually ever seen, because um, there's very little body of law on this. But, but we, if, if we credit the state's finding of fact 46, and if we, you know, if we get past the fact that it's, it's make weight and it reeks of afterthought, and we take it at face value as the judge did, then we have to grapple with the state's admitted exclusion of jurors based on religion. And it's because the state said that a significant favorable characteristic that they relied upon in selecting this jury was membership in a particular church, or lack thereof. And Article 1, Section 26 of the North Carolina Constitution, uh, Justice Earls, as you quoted it earlier, the only thing I'd add to that is that you also may not exclude a person from jury service on account of religion. And the Batson framework applies to those violations, and the question is whether uh, membership in a particular church is a significant factor. Um, and when the state said this was a significant difference, this was what made us prefer these jurors, they admitted that their jury selection was motivated in substantial part by this factor. Um, and there is no need, more need for analysis here. We, we know what they said, and, and this cannot be allowed. Um, it's no more acceptable than if the defense had said, well, we were striking people that went to that church. Um, under our state's constitution, uh, all persons have the natural and inalienable right to worship according to the dictates of their own consciences. And for the state or any person selecting a jury to decide who can serve on a jury based in significant part on, on how that person chooses to worship, it's, it's an interference in the rights of conscience that, that our Constitution protects. Counsel, I have a, a question about that. Um, uh, aren't the statements in the record about church membership somewhat ambiguous? I mean, if you say... Uh, so-and-so goes to a conservative church, you might mean, well, the doctrine of that church is Orthodox Christianity. Or you might mean, I happen to know that everyone who goes to that church or a huge percentage of people who go to that church vote for a certain party. Um, can we really conclude that, that this was... Uh, jury selection based on faith? Uh, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you asked because that was the, it's right here at the top of this page that I just got to. Um, but the, the reputation as a conservative church um, that the state claims is what really motivated their strike, they're just relying on gross generalizations that would be impermissible if they were made about race. Or, you know, if they were to say, well, black people... I think they, they tend to favor the defense, so I, I don't think they can be on the jury, so I'm, I'm striking them. Right? And, and assuming that a person who goes to a particular church is going to have views that are sympathetic with a party either way and basing your strikes on them <coughs> is absolutely impermissible. Gesundheit. Um, the, I mean, imagine, for example, that a striking party in a paternity action um, struck all male jurors from the jury uh, because they thought that, that the male jurors would, they, they're, they're uh, admittedly qualified to serve, 
but they think that they would be more sympathetic with the defendant father, so they struck them. Right? And that's exactly what happened in JEB. And in JEB, that's exactly the argument that the party made. Um, and the Supreme Court rejected it, saying that gender is an impermissible basis for a peremptory strike, um, and that in arguing uh, that these assumptions based on gender are acceptable, a respondent seems to assume that gross generalizations that would be deemed impermissible if made on the basis of race are somehow permissible when made on the basis of gender. And what we have here is assumptions made on the basis of church membership that are, would be impermissible if they had been made on the basis of race or gender. And the state is assuming that they are acceptable because they are based on religion, but, but they are not. Um, so, again, the trial court found as fact that membership in a church was a significant factor in jury selection here. And based on that fact, there is a violation and a new trial is required. Um, Your Honors, the order here, as I've said uh, probably too often now, is, is full of mistakes. It's built on mistakes of facts, mistaken application of the law, mistaken conclusions. And the order on remand here is an exercise in accepting the word of the state without any meaningful analysis. And if this court reviews the arguments in our brief and reviews the record, there really is no conclusion to reach but that a mistake has been made. And not just one, but many. And the order is clear error, and it must be reversed, and Mr. Hobbs must be given a new trial. If there are no questions, I will sit down for a while and reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Zachary Dunn, and I'm here on behalf of the state. In this court's 2020 opinion in this case, the court instructed the Cumberland County Superior Court to conduct a Batson hearing and to enter findings of fact and conclusions of law. The trial court faithfully adhered to this court's direction, held a hearing, and entered an order addressing and rejecting each of defendant's arguments regarding the preemptive strikes of potential jurors Layden, Humphrey, and McNeil. The trial court did not misunderstand or misapply Batson. There's no clear error in its order, and it should be affirmed. And I'd like to roughly uh, match the arguments um, of, of the appellant in this case. So I'll, I'll start with the, the strike rate, the use of strikes in this case. Um, it, the, the statistics are a matter of record. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's no argument about, about how many jurors were struck uh, preemptively by the state uh, and how many were passed, which was uh, nine apiece, or 50% at the time of Mr. McNeil's uh, strike, preemptive strike. Uh, and the third Batson challenge. Um, the trial court appropriately found that although there was uh, use of peremptory strikes or a large number of peremptory strikes to challenge black jurors, that that was negated, or there was factors that negated the inference of discrimination in the case, and I'd like to go through three of them. Um, the first one is that all told, the state passed nine black or African-American jurors uh, to the defense, and the defense used peremptory strikes on five of nine, or 56%. Now, this court made clear in Hobbs 1 that that is not relevant to the state's uh, motivations for striking jurors. We, we agree with that, but we're not challenged that, challenging that here today. However, it is relevant to the ultimate composition of the jury, because it's quite right to say that only two of 12 jurors who served uh, were black or African-American. But that does not take into account the fact that nine jurors were passed 
by the state to the defense, uh, and the defense used five peremptory strikes uh, to remove black jurors. Um, the, the second point there is the state rehabilitated two African-American jurors that the defense attempted to strike for cause, and that included in round one of jury selection uh, Mr. Christopher Munn, uh, who the defense indicated thought that he had some type of intellectual disability, uh, but after further questioning by the state, or excuse me, by the trial court, uh, the court agreed with the state that there was nothing wrong with, with Mr. Munn, there was nothing wrong with uh, his answers, and he ultimately did serve on the jury. Uh, so the state's rehabilitation of two African-American jurors is something uh, that uh, is a factor that negates an inference of discrimination. Um, and the third uh, I'd like to talk about, it did get some airtime here today, uh, is the fact that the state did not use all of its peremptory challenges in this case. Um, under 15A.12.17.A.1, each side in a capital case, as this one was tried, is permitted 14 peremptory strikes. And at the time, putting aside uh, the alternate jurors, at the time that the full uh, jury, you know, the 12 jurors in the box were chosen, um, the state had only used 11 of its uh, 14 strikes. Uh, Your Honor, so so those are three factors that we would we would contend negate an inference of discrimination. Um, and you know, as this court has said uh, in Barden, which is a 2002 case, but other cases, uh, the bare strike rate or use of strikes uh, is something that can be considered as a totality of the circumstances, but it is not dispositive. Uh, so. If it was dispositive, there would have been no reason for this court to remand in 2020 for, for a hearing. Uh, but it's simply not dispositive, as these, this court's case law teaches. Uh, and so given the totality of the circumstances, the, the um, factors that I've highlighted here today, um, the trial court did not clearly err in, in holding um, that the strike rate was, was, did, did not have an inference of discrimination. Um, I would like to talk briefly about finding a fact 46 uh, and the appellant's argument that the state was adding reasons for strikes. Um, if you look at the three African-American jurors that are at issue here, Mr. Humphrey, Mr. Layden, and Mr. McNeil, there was no added reasons at the remand hearing. All of the reasons for the strikes of the, the three jurors at issue came directly from the trial transcript. Now, there was additional reasons as to white jurors, but the reason for that is, is because the appellant expanded his argument at the remand hearing and uh, in a comparative juror analysis uh, started making arguments about different uh, supposedly similarly situated white jurors, and the state had to respond to those arguments. So, Your Honors, I would, you know, if you look closely at the three African-American jurors at issue here, there are no extra reasons provided by the state at any time. Uh, the state was bound by the reasons it gave uh, at step two during the trial, and they uh, absolutely held firm to those reasons. Um, on the religious affiliation point, Your Honors, um, there was, I mean, it's correct that there was some um, discussion about what uh, churches, uh, certain members of the jury attended, um, but as this uh, court held in Eason, quote, an attorney cannot be expected to ignore all outside knowledge and experience when exercising peremptory challenges. 
and I think um, that lines up with some of the questions that have been here to, uh, have been uh, asked here today at the hearing transcript on page 72. Uh, the, the prosecutor, you know, in talking about this issue, said, you know, we may not know. It, uh, excuse me, it may not be of record that it's a conservative church, the one that they were asking about, but we know it. Um, so it's 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 permissible for uh, as Eason teaches for um, the prosecutors to bring in their outside knowledge and use that knowledge uh, when determining what the jurors they might want to peremptorily strike. Um, this certainly is counsel. Not yes, is there to your right, sir? <laughs> is there anything uh, in the record that um, sheds light on what the state meant by conservative church? There isn't, Your Honor. I mean, in my review of it, the only uh, thing I was able to find is the quote, uh, it may not be of record that it's a conservative church, but we know it. So I think that's that's the only thing, and, you know, I, I might be wrong, but Thank as you. I stand here today, I think that's the only thing that we know about, about this particular church, um, Your Honors. Um, and I would like to point out that the defense... Um, in addition to the state, uh, inquired about the jurors' specific religious affiliations, elicited responses about specific churches attended by specific jurors, and asked uh, whether religion uh, is important in guiding your decision-making. That's a transcript page 1095. It was a direct question asked by the defense during um, questioning of jurors. Uh, turning a little bit, if I could, uh, to the alleged discriminatory, discriminatory statements made by the prosecutor. This is issue seven in the briefs. Um, defendant contends that the state misleadingly lauded itself in saying that the state accepted the first black on the jury um, and, and claims that that is uh, overt racial discrimination. Um, but I'd like to, of course, first, that is inartfully said, I would not... I would not um, defend those exact, that exact turn of phrase, but if put in context, I believe it shows that there is no actual discriminatory statement uh, with that statement. Um, in, in that context, the prosecutor was comparing the current case to an older case from this court, which is State versus Smith uh, from 2000. And I want to quote the transcript of what the prosecutor said here and compare it to the exact words by, used by this court uh, in Smith. Uh, so the quote from the transcript from the prosecutor is, uh, also in that case, meaning Smith, the court noted that the state had accepted the first black on the jury, quote, comma, we did that in this case. Uh, that's from uh, transcript page 1580. Uh, now, if you uh, look at the quote from this case, uh, this, this court said, uh, comma, here, or excuse me, here, comma, the prosecutor had accepted the first black to enter the jury box, and it also struck whites before striking the prospective juror at issue. Uh, so while that phraseology is, is certainly not perfect, uh, it's an artful, it's not something that I would use, uh, when you line up what the prosecutor was saying in that moment, uh, especially considering that he had uh, made a direct comparison to this court's case in Smith and seemed to almost parrot the language in Smith, um, there's, there's no showing and the trial court clearly, or did not clearly err in finding that there was no discriminatory discriminatory statements uh, by the prosecution on that point. Um, I'd like to go back, if I may, to um, finding a fact 46, because you, you explained that the explanations given there were not, um, 
that they ha that that issue of of what reasons there might have been for accepting white jurors hadn't been raised before. But I but I didn't hear you, and I apologize if I missed it. But your response to the bigger argument that I believe the defendant is making that the fact that the state is representing that it, that it accepted uh, non-black jurors because they had military experience, because they had law enforcement background, because they had been victims of crime, and yet those same characteristics were shared by the African-American potential jurors who were subject of a peremptory challenge, that that seems to be further evidence that there was um, a racial motivation in the decision to challenge those African-American jurors. Well, Your Honor, that, that gets to the comparative juror analysis. Um, and, you know, in Miller L2, the Supreme Court said that there's supposed to be a side-by-side -side comparison of black jurors struck and white jurors who are allowed to serve. And in this case, the defense wants to expand that test to provide that, dis uh, that discrimination is shown if any one black juror who is struck uh, has a characteristic um, the same as a white juror who is allowed to serve. So um, it's really expanding the test from a side-by-side, -side, you know, look at these two jurors. There can be some differences, but there must be a lot of similarities to, uh, you know, essentially this one juror had this one characteristic, for instance, military background, and here's some others. Uh, white jurors who were allowed to serve who had that same background. Uh, so we would say first, under Miller L2, that is not the correct way to do a comparative juror analysis. Um, you know, in Smith from 1991, this court said that jury selection is more art than science. And so long as uh, the motive does not appear to be racial discrimination, there can be differences in questioning uh, and, and differences um, and challenges based on legitimate hunches. Um, so, so the fact that one juror or several jurors, white jurors, had certain characteristics that were the same as a struck a juror, an African-American juror, does not in itself uh, show any inference of discrimination. That would be our, our contention, Your Honor. But why wouldn't it be proper to compare the African-American juror who was excused to n numbers one, two, three, and four of the white jurors who were accepted? I think... I mean, you, can, it, you can still do side by side. You just have four people on. You can. It seems to me you can still do the comparative juror analysis. I think you can, um, and that's that's certainly true. Um, for instance, uh, I, you know, looking at reservations about the death penalty, uh, that's one of the areas uh, that the defense has uh, uh, done a comparative juror analysis. Of course, we disagree with their their conclusions, uh, but reservations about the death penalty. Um, the three African-American jurors at issue here, Mr. McNeil, Humphrey, and Layden, were compared uh, to four, one, two, three, yeah, four uh, white jurors, which were Stevens, Hardin, Elmore, and Flores. Uh, but doing a true side-by-side -side comparative juror analysis shows that these really aren't uh, similarly situated jurors such that a comparative juror analysis would be appropriate. Um, for instance, Mr. McNeil on page 2336 said, well, I've got some feeling about the death penalty. I'm not totally against it, uh, but, quote, I'm not for the death penalty. That was a, that was a um, declarative statement made by Mr. McNeil. Um, whereas uh, Mr. Elmore, uh, one of the, the white jurors that the defense uh, speaks about both in the under-questioning argument and in the comparative juror analysis, 
Um, when he was with the state, so when the state had an opportunity to exercise peremptory challenges, and this is at uh, page 1547, uh, Mr. Elmore said, I, I wouldn't say I would be, have any reservations, I wouldn't call it hesitation, uh, but he would take you know, the issue of the death penalty very, very serious. So yes, the words hesitation and reservation are in there, but what uh, Mr. Elmer is telling the state in that instance that is that he does not have hesitation, he does not have reservation, but, you know, it's a very weighty subject and he would take it very seriously, and that's sort of what you want a juror to do. Um, now, the defense rightly points uh, to some two, 250 pages later, uh, and it's at page 1816, um, Mr. Elmer uh, responds to the defense and says, quote, I have some reservations about the death penalty. But first, that's completely different from what he said. It's the exact opposite from what he said uh, to the state. And at that point, the state had already passed Mr. Elmore to the defense, and there's no way uh, for the state at that point to exercise any peremptory challenges there. So a side-by-side -side comparison of them on this issue uh, shows uh, that they're not really similarly situated, Your Honors. Um, and Mr. Flores, Antonio Flores, the, the defendant argues that, that at page 2162 of the transcript, he, when asked for his opinion about the death penalty, he stated that I'm not crazy about it, I love life. Um, yes, but he also said he believed that there were instances when the death penalty would be appropriate. And that, at least in the prosecutor's eyes, was different from Mr. McNeil, who said, you know, he said some other things to be certain, but he said, quote, I'm not for the death penalty. Uh, so there was uh, significantly more reservations about the death penalty from Mr. McNeil than there was from, from Mr. Flores, Mr. Elmore. I mean, I'm happy to go uh, talk about Mr. Stevens and Mr. Harden um, if the court would like, but I'd, I'd like to turn, it's still comparative juror analysis, but speak about uh, the mental health issues and connections, which is another issue uh, which uh, the defendant claims a comparative juror analysis shows uh, that a black juror was struck because of mental health connections, uh, whereas the white jurors uh, were allowed to serve or were not struck by the state. <clears throat> um, the defense uh, points to Mr. Layden, um, at, who at uh, transcript page 1596 um, said that one of his diagnosis, diagnoses, his specific diagnoses was post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, PTSD, and in the state in giving the reasons for its strike specifically said that the defense is uh, bringing an argument, you know, of course the defense um, uh, admitted uh, that uh, the killing had occurred and was done by the defendant, but admitted or, or but claimed for among other reasons that um, he was mentally ill because he had PTSD. Uh, and so the, the state said well, we don't want a juror who might, um, whose symptoms resembled the defendants who might, um, you know, feel a certain type of way about the defendant because of his own diagnoses. Um, and I would note, Your Honors, um, at page 1600, Ms. Pullen, another African-American juror who was struck, um, the state gave the exact same reason. Uh, the state said that they struck potential juror Poland because of her PTSD diagnosis. So the same as Mr. Layden and different from the four uh, white jurors that uh, the defense points to, which is Mr. Stevens, uh, Ms. Williams, uh, Ms. Kallenbaugh, and, and Ms. Reedy. Um, 
I'm happy to talk about any of them, but I will uh, single out Mr. Stevens um, for, for the purposes of our argument here today. Uh, Mr. Stevens at page 961 says that you know, he had been in therapy for depression, uh, but he had ended that therapy in 1986, and he had not sought any treatment um, since then. So uh, comparing one juror who has the exact diagnoses and is on, still ongoing treatment for uh, the same condition that the defense or the defendant had, it's, it's not a proper comparison to, def, uh, to compare that juror to a juror like Mr. Stevens, uh, who had depression in the 80s but had, had stopped uh, taking treatment uh, at, at the latest uh, 1986. Um, absent any questioning, I would like to talk about the under-questioning argument. Again, it's un intertwined a little bit with the comparative juror analysis, but it is a little bit distinct, so I'd like to talk about it separately if I might. Um, we have a waiver argument on the under-questioning argument. Um, we're perfectly happy to stand on that. We, we think we're correct in the waiver argument, but I'd like to go straight to the merits if I could. Um, Defendant raises these same three subsets uh, of questions um, that the defendant argues uh, that the state under-questioned um, black jurors and uh, because, or white jurors, excuse me, because they uh, declined to seek what they did not want to find about white prospective jurors. Um, but this court in Fletcher said that, you know, questions to jurors can be varied in form and disparate questioning of prospective jurors does not necessarily give rise to bats and error. Uh, so, you know, the, looking at the jurors individually uh, and their exact characteristics is very important. <clears throat> and um, I'd like to uh, talk about Mr. Humphrey a little bit uh, in the mental health connections because um, he uh, is an African-American juror who was struck. Um, and the defining feature about him is he worked in a group home. He worked with um, individuals who had all kinds of mental uh, issues, and he said, quote, you name it, I've dealt with it. That's at page 1425. Uh, and he summarized his role in addition to getting uh, the um, patients to, you know, appointments. He said, quote, I'm trying to be a positive role model for them, um, end quote. So that really sets Mr. Humphrey apart because uh, in striking Mr. Humphrey, uh, when asked to give the reasons for the strike, the state said, you know, this juror, this potential juror, really um, has dealt with a lot of individuals with mental health uh, issues. He has tried to be um, a positive role model for people who uh, the state thought was just like the defendant and was afraid that, they, that he would um, take that into account too much uh, when serving on the jury. So that, that uh, is the reason for the strike of Mr. Humphrey. And, um, you know, in, er, yes. And then in the under-questioning argument, um, the defense compares Mr. Humphrey to five different jurors. Again, I'm happy to speak about any of them, um, but I would like to um, talk about Ms. Marrero, if I could, uh, unless the court wants me to talk about any of the other jurors uh, in the case. Miss um, Marrero said that her ex-brother-in-law had a breakdown when he was in, in military service 15 or 20 years ago, that he had gotten help, 
And although they were not close, um, he seemed like he was fine. Uh, so yes, I mean, that is a mental health connection. Uh, if you put it under that broad of an umbrella, uh, Ms. Marrero had a health connection because of her ex-brother-in-law. Mr. Humphrey had a health connection because he worked at a group home. But really comparing those two jurors uh, shows that they are not similarly situated. One had a distant, supposedly ex-relative, uh, who seemed fine, uh, and um, one, Mr. Humphrey, worked in a group home and tried to be uh, a positive role model for people who the state thought was just like defendants. So doing the side-by-side -side juror comparison there really, in our, in our view, doesn't work. Um, unless the court has any questions on any of the arguments, uh, I would like to hit one final uh, argument that's issue three in the briefs. It's about the historical evidence uh, that was presented by uh, the defendant uh, below on remand. Um, the defendant mostly cites to the Michigan State University study, which was looking at capital cases from between 1990 and 2010, 11 of which, 11 cases, were for, from Cumberland County. Uh, and uh, the defense claims that it shows a history of racial discrimination in Cumberland County. Now, the trial court appropriately accepted the study, looked at it, uh, and gave it the appropriate weight, which it found to be little. Uh, and one important characteristic of why the trial court thought that the MSU study was of little value uh, was because uh, the prosecutors involved in this case uh, were not involved in any of the 11 or any of the cases uh, that the, that were identified by the study. Uh, so the fact that these prosecutors were not involved in any of those cases, the trial court believed and we think is not clearly erroneous, uh, makes the MSU study uh, have little value. Um, there was also three flaws. Uh, the trial court characterized them as flaws in the MSU study uh, that I'd like to quickly go through. The first one was that prosecutors, either current or former, uh, were not, at choose, uh, not used in choosing relevant characteristics. The second was that recent law school graduates were used to conduct the evaluations in the MSU study. And the third is that only the cold trial transcript were used. Now, the defense claims that the, calling these flaws is improper, but what the defense doesn't say is that these are incorrect. I mean, these are objectively true things about the MSU study. Um, so the trial court did not clearly err in, uh, in evaluating the study, uh, looking at easily observable facts about it, and making a common sense evaluation, which factored into its determination that the MSU study had little weight in this case. Unless the court has any questions for me, uh, I will just conclude uh, by saying that the uh, order uh, at issue here is not clearly erroneous and it should be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Rebuttal. Thank you, your honors. I will try to keep this short so we can all go home. Um, Justice Allen, you were asking about uh, experiences and sort of can we draw conclusions about a religious group because we know that religious group. We, we know that these people are conservative, so we can draw these conclusions. And I don't think that that's acceptable. I think if you look at JEB, 
they sort of say, hey, even if we all know that men are going to be sympathetic to the putative father, you still can't base your jury strikes on that on that reason. So e even if... Actually, sorry, what I was getting at is, so uh, um, uh, there are, for example, many Catholic churches. Uh, there's a Catholic church in Chapel Hill. There's a Catholic church in my hometown where I grew up. Uh, the political persuasions of the congregation, of the congregations, are very different, even though the doctrine is the same. So that's really sort of the point I was making, is I'm not sure that, that saying, well, I know that the folks who go to, to stick with sort of the Catholic Church example, Catholic Church A, that congregation, the people who go there tend to be politically conservative, but the, the folks who go to Catholic Church B tend to be politically liberal. My, my question was, if that's what we're talking about, is that really a, a distinction based on religion? Um, I, I think it is in the same way that uh, by choosing to strike male jurors because you think they're going to sympathize with a male client is it's it, it's a gross generalization that is tied to religion and that is unacceptable um, under JEB and and the state pointed out that religion was explored by the defense and I would just say that if the state had thought that the state or the defense was discriminating against religion they would have been able to object on these grounds as well at the time um, uh, the state mentioned something about finding of fact 46, and they assert that the new explanations um, for why these jurors were stricken were not new justifications. But, but they are. I mean, if you're saying this is why we preferred these jurors, that you know we like these people because they had these factors, you're saying we didn't like those people because they did not have those factors. I mean, it's one and the same. But it also gets at this whole whole juror analysis thing that the state kind of made up here and, and got the trial court to run with. And it's discussed extensively in the brief, and I'll answer any questions about it that you have. But I think really, if, if you read the brief, and if the state reads Miller L2 carefully, they will see that what they are saying is wrong, right? When, when Miller L does a comparative juror analysis, they look at what did the state say the reason for the strike was, and does that apply to a juror that they accepted? And that's it. And the only time any of anyone at the Supreme Court bothers to go in and say, well, what about those white jurors might have made the state like them? Right? The only time that happens is in the dissents in Millerell and in Flowers. And in Millerell, the majority directly grapples with that and says, we do not do that because jurors are not the product of a set of cookie cutters. And every comparative juror analysis that the Supreme Court of the United States has done has done it the way we have told you to do it. If they were to look at this order, that's how they would do their comparative juror analysis. And I'm not sure that there, there is any way to explain it other than to say, go look at those cases and see how they do it and see if what I'm telling you is correct or if what the state is telling you is correct. Um, and then finally, um, well, not quite finally, but um, the, with respect to the periphery strikes, um, this court said that, that in Clegg that Batson is like a scale, right? And you put sort of the defense evidence or the, the opponent to the strikes evidence of discrimination on one side and the rebuttal evidence on the other side. 
And here the state acts as though what the trial court found was that, sure, there was a lot of strikes against black jurors, but this was all rebutted by other evidence, as if they just conducted this balancing. But, but the finding that we talk about here, among others, is that there was this finding that uh, there was a negation of a, a an inference of discrimination because of the peremptories remaining, but also the state did not repeatedly use peremptory challenges against black jurors in such a way as to tend to establish a pattern of strikes. Right? So, so the court did find that these numbers were not a pattern. And the problem is, if you're going to put your evidence on the scale and weigh it, and you don't find that there is a pattern, if you find that having peremptories remaining is evidence negating inference, then you're putting that evidence on the wrong side of the scale, and it's going to throw off the conclusions that you draw from that. It's going to mess up your analysis. Um, and then the last thing I, I want to hit, unless you guys, uh, unless you all have questions, um, is specifically with this comparison that the state uh, drew about Stevens. They, they were attacking the comparison with Stevens. And they say that, that his mental health issues ended in the 80s. And so, of course, that's too remote to be relevant to this jury selection. Um, and the, the trial court doesn't explain why that's true. But, but the trial court is very inconsistent about how it applies that sort of factor. Because if the 1980s is too remote for Stevens' depression to matter, then why is it okay for the state to say that they excused McNeil because he used to go to clubs in the 1970s? Why is that not too remote? And as we have shown in our brief addressing these comparisons, the order is replete with this kind of double standard and inconsistent analysis. And specifically with respect to Stevens, the fact that his depression ended in, the, in 1986 isn't even the worst thing about him, according to what the state cared about. Because they said that they struck some jurors because they believed that they would defer to defense experts. And Stevens himself said, if you put an expert up there, I'm going to believe what they say. And yet the state wasn't concerned. So I think... I can't do it now. I, you don't want me to do it now in the next two minutes. But I think if you look at the briefs, you'll see that we have addressed all of these concerns. Um, and nothing that the state has said in its argument has made finding of fact 46 true. Nothing it has said has made striking black jurors at four times the rate of non-black jurors evidence negating an inference of racial discrimination. And nothing it has said has made the trial court's failure to follow United States Supreme Court precedent acceptable. Um, this order is full of mistakes. If you read the briefs and look at the record, you will be left with the firm and definite con conviction that a mistake has been made. It was clear error. It must be reversed, and Mr. Hobbs must be given a new trial. And with no more questions, I'll sit down. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you both.